And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This has been a wonderful series for us in the doctrines of grace. It's been my privilege to sit under the teaching of the other men who have brought these messages to you. It's my privilege this morning, having started the series with an overview, uh, to finish it this morning with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so I want to ask you to pray with me before we do that together, shall we? Lord, we look to you for humility that we might receive your word eagerly, that we might understand it rightly, and that we might apply it passionately. We want so much to honor you, and we think of the dear folks who are unable to be with us this morning. We trust you'd give them grace, keep them healthy, you'd make them well where they are not. And for those who are traveling, that you would keep them safe and return them to us next week. We ask as we go to your word now that you would give us an honest approach and an accurate understanding for your glory and for our effectiveness in evangelism. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Five weeks ago this morning, I introduced our study in the doctrines of grace uh, that will culminate today in the God-given steadfastness of every Christian. The fact that when God grants repentance and belief, they are thereafter manifest in a lifetime of faithful devotion to the God of salvation and to his church. Imperfect steadfastness, reflecting God's glory and accomplishing the salvation of his people and securing them in this lifetime and in the next. I told you that day we would introduce the doctrines of God's grace in his word by which he frees spiritual slaves unto a life of victory over sin. And that is, in fact, what we have seen these last several weeks. In the following weeks after that intro, you heard from John Egler on total depravity, Rick Hinshaw on unconditional election, Michael Perkins on actual atonement, John Fallahi on irresistible grace, all these doctrines derived naturally and faithfully from God's Word. This morning, as I've said, we will see the steadfastness of every Christian, otherwise known as the perseverance of the saints, also plainly and certainly derived from God's Word. I've read to you from Romans 8, 28 to 30, and so let's go there. Uh, there are many passages that we could look at in depth in order to ask why it is we are so wholeheartedly committed to this idea that when God saves someone, that person actually looks like they're saved. This is one extremely helpful passage. Now, by way of a short intro, you need to understand that the fifth point of Arminianism in its origin rejected this idea. The premise was that if you could grab on to your salvation, if you could somehow resurrect yourself from the dead, that's what Paul says about us, right, that we were dead, if you could make yourself not dead, then you could make yourself dead, and that's logical. 
if the first point of Arminianism is true, then you have reason to believe that the fifth point is also true. If you could make yourself having been dead to be alive, then you could make yourself being alive to be dead by outsinning God's grace. Perfectly logical, but perfectly untrue, but consistent. Over time, those who became saved while subject to the wrong theology of Arminianism acknowledged from the word, you can't lose your salvation. And so they put a little too much emphasis on the idea of what one would call eternal security. Let me just tell you, that's not the primary issue. It's a major benefit, (laughs) and it's certainly God's blessing to all those whom he has elected to save. But the real issue is, as you know, the perseverance of the saints, because that's what we can see. You don't see people in heaven today, but you see people persevering. You can know someone is, in fact, in Christ and headed for heaven if he shows long-term perseverance. The person who jumps ship at the slightest glance of difficulty is the person who shows himself likely to not be one who perseveres. He's likely not of those who are in Christ. We don't always know. John says it's obvious, but he doesn't mean that you can just tell by looking at someone the first time you meet them. Well, he's not dressed right. He must not be saved. Well, he doesn't show up on time. He must not be saved. Well, there's something different about him. I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but he's probably not a Christian. That's not what John's talking about. John's very clear. He, he uh, explains it in detail. The issue is that those who are in Christ love two things. Now, they love more than these two things, but in that passage in 1 John, he says they love the church and they love righteousness. And you know the primary issue in the book of Romans is righteousness. That's the, the central issue. You might call it the hub. And so when we get here to chapter 8, Paul deals with what this look, looks like and what it's going to look like. You sow that statement, your, uh, what you might call a thesis statement, is that this morning, uh, this morning we will see the permanent God-given steadfastness of those whom he has predestined And we will consider the example of one such man so that we too will persevere in the faith for God's glory. Now, let me just say from the outset, many times people will hear a statement like that and they'll think thoughts like, and they might even say out loud, well, that's contradictory. If God predestined them to be sanctified, then why do they need to be commanded to be sanctified? Because you have latitude. Because while God is completely sovereign, that by no means, not even one tiny little bit, dismisses the reality of man's responsibility throughout God's word. See, this is the perplexity of the paradox of those two equal truths, equally important. Neither dismisses one even in the slightest. But the person who is unwilling to acknowledge the fact that while God has a decretive will and a moral will, will not allow for that that paradox to be what it is. He wants to control it. He wants to say, that doesn't fit my philosophical condition. He wants to be in charge of the intellect. He wants to say that doesn't work for me, so I need to find something that works for me. And Arminianism easily works for someone like that. Arminianism feeds the flesh. It feeds the soul. It makes man feel better about himself. I did this. I played the part. I think you'll see that undone 
this morning, if you look with me closely at God's Word. Well, point number one in this effort. Point number one, uh, I want to go back to the so that statement so you remember where we're coming from and you'll see where we're headed with this. We will see the permanent God-given steadfastness of those whom he has predestined so that you too will persevere in the faith, all for God's glory. Point number one, I want you to see God-ordained prosperity. God-ordained prosperity. In verse 28, we love this verse, don't we? You quote part of this verse frequently, don't you? (laughs) And you've heard people give a truncated version of it. Nothing wrong with that. I had someone tell me once, you know, you didn't quote the whole verse, not just related to this, but you didn't quote the whole verse. Of course, my response is probably what your response would have been. You know, verses weren't in the original text, right? The numbers were added later. You can choose any part of any passage. The question is, are you faithful to what it means? You don't need to read the whole sentence. It doesn't mean you're somehow grammatically or theologically unfaithful. But the portion that you often hear quoted is that all things work together for good. Not an untrue statement. That's a true statement. But this statement in this context is given particularly for a particular group of people and only for that group of people. We know that for those who love God. That's who it's for. Now let me ask you, and I'm asking for a verbal response here. Who loves God? Okay, Christians, believers. How about, think from 1 John, those whom God first loved. Awesome. You guys are great. (laughs) That's who loves God? Has anyone ever loved God prior to God applying his special love to them? No. When God manifests that love, then instantaneously, the person is regenerate. He's caused to go from death to life. Now, this is a, this is a pre-temporal love. This is, a, this is a love that predates your existence. We'll see that in this text. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a fabulous text. And there's no arguing one's way out of this if he is attempting to make this mean that God somehow has not applied a special love to a particular group of people. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let me just plead with you to stop assuming that people who claim to know Christ, who want nothing to do with the church, are Christians. Be honest with that person. Ask that person to be honest with you. Remind them of what the Lord has said in the book of Revelation. Be ye not lukewarm. Be hot or be cold graciously, lovingly ask that person to be honest about the fact that if he doesn't love the brethren, he doesn't love God. He's got a false Christianity. He's got a false religion, and it's proven by his life. That does not give you cause to be unkind to that person. 
it gives you all the more cause to show the love of Christ that that person would enjoy the love of Christ himself. Now, what is this purpose? Ephesians 1 verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is the one place right here in Ephesians 1 verses 5 through 14. This is the one place in Scripture where we get some insight into what the purpose in God's will is in having predestined some. This is what it comes down to. It is the kind intention of his will. And if you're thinking, well, how is that kind for him to save some and not others, then Paul's words to you in chapter 9 are, who are you, O man? That's that's God's words. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God is sovereign and he is gracious. He has determined to set his special love on some when none of us deserve it. All of us warrant eternal suffering rooted in our personally chosen total depravity. And and if you can't get your arms around that, then you have no need for a Savior who is sovereign. You think you're not totally depraved, that there's some stitch of light, some stitch of goodness in you, then you think you can choose a pseudo-sovereign God, and then you've got a really majorly wonky theology. It's all wrong. You see how when you start to correct one area of theology, like many Arminians have with the fifth point of Arminianism by saying, you know, you really can't lose your salvation, that challenges you to think about whether or not you ever actually merited it. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is God's purpose? The kind intention of his will is that God's purpose plays out in your suffering. You've heard me quote it many times from 1 Peter 4 that it's God's will that you suffer. heaven there will be no suffering you can wait but in the meantime you are being conformed to the image of his son we'll get to that in a moment we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose his purpose is your suffering that you would enjoy a greater conformity to the image of his son First Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what is good. You say anything about license to complain. In fact, there are plenty of places in Scripture we were commanded not to complain. And you see that the detriment of the Israelites was their complaining. It resulted in many of them having a desperate and dis- dis- really destructive condition. Point number two, I want you to see a God-ordained Christ-likeness. Not only do we see this God-ordained prosperity, in other words, a God-ordained outcome, that God has ordained, God has predestined you such that all things would work to your good if you love God because he first loved you. But here in point two, you see a God-ordained Christ-likeness. 
Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is prognosco, intimate knowledge before. In Matthew 7, 21, you know this passage, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never ignone you from gnosko. It's the exact same term without the prefix. I never knew you. I never gnosko you. But in our passage in Romans, that's exactly what he's saying he did do. For those whom he gnosko, pra gnosko, knew beforehand, knew intimately. Christ says, I don't know you, so depart from me. I've never known you. I didn't know you. I don't know you. But for those whom he knew in eternity past, he also predestined. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, friends, be practical about this. Be real about this. Just start thinking, who do I know that's not being conformed to the image of Christ and why? Why do I not love that person enough to sit down with them and say, look, this is not biblical Christianity. You claim to know Christ and yet you... You don't love the brethren. You don't love righteousness. It's just a lack of love on your part and my part when we're unwilling to do that. This concept of being predestined is to choose or select in advance, in advance of some event. And the Arminians will say, well, God looked down the corridors of time and saw what man would do. That's not before the event. God looking down in the corridors of time and determining what he would do based on what someone else would do in the future, that's not predestination. That's telling the future. And that's not what God does. God determines the future. But he did this. He foreknew us. He predestined us. Why? So that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So this is really not what some would call rocket science. The issue is when you see someone legitimately being conformed to the image of his son, you can say, that seems like a testimony of their predestination. But the one who's not being conformed to his image, there should be questions in your mind, his mind, her mind. Why is this? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. That you would be the brother of Jesus. What's the idea there? He's your spiritual big brother to whom you look. You look up to him as an example. You follow in his footsteps. You look at his life and you ask the question, how can my life be likened to his? How can I be less like me and more like him? 
That's this God-ordained Christ-likeness. It's not some robotic application that gets slapped on you and you just become more like Christ, sort of in a let-go, let-God Keswick way. But no, you work at it. It requires hard work. And it results in God doing the work of sanctification. Philippians 2 Verse 12 is probably the clearest expression of that, where Paul says, you who have always obeyed, he's speaking to faithful Christians, you who have always obeyed, work out your salvation. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's his good pleasure that you're you're being chipped away unto that sculpture that one day will clearly emulate the person of Christ, such that as people read the word, they get to know Christ better, they can confidently say, you know, I see you becoming more like Christ. That's what you want to hear, not for the sake of hearing it. You want it to actually be true. You want to be able to say that I'm putting off sin, I'm putting on Christ, I'm robing myself in Christ. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See that? So who began it? Well, in a biblical system, one that we might call the doctrines of grace, God began the work. In the man-made system, you began the work. So you have to complete the work. You have to maintain your condition. The structure that you see in the Scripture It's God who began the work, and it's God who's going to complete the work. He will bring it to fruition. Paul talks about how this works in an ecclesiological manner as a pastor. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's a process. There's involvement amongst everyone. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you see that that's a body work. Every member of the body working collectively unto that end. But Paul says, this is my role, verse 29, for this, right? For the completion, for the sanctification, for the progressive spiritual growth, I toil. (laughs) I work hard. Struggling with all his energy, God's energy interesting. I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So again, it's God actually performing the work of sanctification, but he's not going to do that without the platform of man's faithfulness. Oh, but he will do it, and man will do his part if God has ordained that it would happen. This is how we are conformed to the image of his son. Well, point number three We've seen a God-ordained prosperity. We've seen a God-ordained Christ-likeness. Now I want you to see a God-ordained justification. See, this is what you need. You need for God's opinion, if I can use that term, of you to be an opinion of justice. Think with me back to Romans 1. We are told that the wrath of God will rain down from heaven against all what? Unrighteousness and ungodliness. All of it. Against those who do what? 
suppress the truth in what? Unrighteousness. Injustice. So what do you need? You need justice. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You got one mark on your record. It's over. You commit one violation of the law, one infraction. You're guilty of what? The whole law. So what do you need? You need justification. And if you can't achieve justification, what do you need? You need a savior. You need a substitute. You need one who has done that. You need one who has accomplished that. You don't need to bring yourself to him. You don't need to say, hey, Jesus, you know, you're great. I want to do better. Can we work together? <laughs> no. You trust him. You trust his work. You trust his accomplishment. You believe in what he has done. You know, our memory passage this morning, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. He shall do what? Say it with me. He shall save his people from their sins. Are you sure it doesn't say he will, he will give an opportunity for people to choose to be saved? He will provide an, an opportunity for some to embrace salvation? No, no, he will actually save them. He doesn't provide an opportunity. He actually saves. He actually justifies. And the result is what you and I know and love and call imputation. The term evangelical has been hijacked. It means almost nothing anymore. The term born again was stolen many years ago. It almost means nothing anymore. Someone asked John MacArthur, so what term should we choose? He said, I think imputationists. No one will steal that. <laughs> Boy, that would be great. That, that's what sets the believer apart. It's imputation. Now, what is imputation? Please mark this down somewhere. Imputation is not impartation. They sound a lot alike. They're completely different. Imputation is not impartation. And imputation is certainly not infusion. Oh, this is so important. See, we heard a great deal of correction related to Roman Catholic false gospel, false theology. Very, very similar, very akin to Arminianism. I heard that last week, and a number of you have told me, wow, the light came on. I hope so. It's really critical. You see, the Reformation wasn't about producing Calvinists out of Arminians. It was about producing believers out of Roman Catholics who held to a man-made theology which shows its residual reality today in Arminianism. That's what the Reformation was about. It was about justification by faith alone. So in this passage, you see a God-ordained justification, not a chosen, achieved, performed justification. See the difference? It's so huge. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. 
Justification, justification took place on the cross, applied in space, time, and history. Now think of it. If you are of the condition that the Bible says all men are born into and you're guilty, you sinned in Adam, Romans 5, verse 12, are you able to flip some sort of switch and justify yourself? What right do you have? What credibility do you have? What ability do you have to bring about justification? You don't. So you believe in the one who does. That's it. You believe. You believe. You say, so are you saying that all you do is believe and you don't have to show any proof of it? No, I've already refuted that. Don't go there. It's clear in this passage. You are conformed to the image of of the Savior if you are justified by the Savior. The one who's not currently being conformed to the image of Christ is clearly not justified in Christ. He's chosen some man-made justification, and that's exactly what it is. He's justifying his life by saying, well, I don't do this or that, you know. Oh, but I love Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible that justifies and clearly imputes. Now, what does imputation mean? I didn't tell you. I told you what it doesn't mean. I wanted, to, I wanted that to sink in. Impart means you give something, right? Infuse means to become entangled with or ensconced with. That's Roman Catholic gospel. That righteousness is infused to you. You become literally righteous. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I did, I think most would go up if I said, now, how many of you are saved, right? Most hands would go up. And if I were to ask, now, how many of you would say, yeah, I, I've got infused righteousness. Man, I'm righteous. I don't ever sin, because that's the idea. But you get, this, you get this completely contradictory Roman Catholic idea that then you can lose your salvation, you can reject God's grace in such a way that you actually lose God's grace. And you've got to get the cup refilled by going to confession and fulfilling the seven sacraments. We talked about indulgences uh, in the intro to this study. And the indulgences buy back some grace for you. That's not grace. Grace can't be purchased. That's what indulgences were for. So you have a God-ordained justification in that God predestined it. He also supplied it. He predestined, he called, and he supplied justification. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Enough said, for all who believe. He who believes in Jesus, his substitutionary atoning work on the cross, and his new life-giving resurrection, to him is granted most certainly justification. Paul goes on there in Romans 3, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5, 9. 
since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Where's your hope? It's in his blood. You don't have hope if you have Christ without death. You need Christ's substitutionary, atoning, expiating death. Imputation is a declaration. It is a declaration that that's true of you. And that declaration is accompanied by conformity to the person of Christ. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. You can confidently say, man, praise God, I'm overcoming these patterns of sin in my life. I I see the Lord doing a work. He's, he's causing me to want to be more disciplined. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, discipline yourself for godliness. And I, I want to do that, and I am doing it. And I'm getting help from other men in my life. And you gals, I'm getting help from other women in my life. And I'm seeing the Lord do that work. He's conforming me to his image. I have no uh, delusions that I have arrived or that I don't have a lot of work to do. But man, it's great. It's exhilarating to see the Lord conforming me to the image of his son. You can look back on your life like Paul did and say, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Huh? Yeah, Saul the Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. What does that mean? Well, first of all, he perceived himself to be blameless. Second, others perceived him. And third, there was some measure of accomplishment in this regard. He was doing what he could to fulfill the law. There was a measure of blamelessness in his willingness to do that which God says. And yet he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, everything you might ever have done to achieve or earn or choose some measure of righteousness is dung. Paul says, I count it all as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This God-ordained justification is predetermined, and it is certain. It's God-ordained. Point number four, I want you to see God-ordained glorification. God-ordained glorification The remainder of verse 30 says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he uses the past tense because he speaks of something that's going to happen because it is certainly going to happen. He's so certain of it, he speaks of it as if it has already happened. The work necessary for it to happen is in the past. The moment of transfer from this life to the next, glorification will take place. And John explains it this way in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will see him as he is because we will be in a glorified state. No more sin. No more corruption. No more coloring of the facts. No more gossip. No more slander. No more conflict. We will see him as he is because we will be like him. But we purify ourselves in the meantime, conforming ourselves to his image. So the person who says, well, which is it? Did God ordain it, or are you supposed to do it? He's avoiding the reality that God ordained it, and we are to be involved in it. It's an offensive truth that brings man to his knees, where he actually must believe in Christ to have accomplished his salvation. We are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, conformed, and glorified. You see, when God saves someone, he is sanctified. Arminian theology originally said one who could raise himself from the dead by choosing righteousness could put himself back on death row by outsinning God's grace. If he controlled his destiny, he controlled it all. While the person who engages and enjoys this man-centered theology temporarily, he tussles with some of the elements of Scripture that he believes soothe his soul, but he is not comfortable with the deeper truths that offend and assault his soul. So he will not grapple with them. Rather, he denies them because they do not fit his philosophy. But the man justified by faith alone will rest in the grace of Christ. If he's saved by grace... He's sanctified by grace, and he wants to be. Martin Luther was such a man, born in 1483, just a few years before Columbus discovered the Americas. His father prepared him to be a lawyer and sent him off to school. On his way home from school during a break, he was caught in a thunderstorm and nearly struck by lightning. He was so frightened by this He cried out, St. Anna, help me, and if you do, I will become a monk. Not much prior to this, he had dropped some sort of sword or a blade on his foot and nearly cut it off, and he cried out, help me, St. Mary. He made good on his promise. Now, Mary couldn't help him, and Anna couldn't help him, but he didn't know that because he, like all Roman Catholics, are taught this nonsense. He survived the storm and kept his word, much to his father's disappointment. He became a priest and earned his doctorate in theology and became a professor at the University of Wittenberg in 1513. He taught the Psalms, Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans, all as a false believer. A man named Tetzel came through town selling indulgences, and although Luther was unconverted at the time, he knew you couldn't purchase heaven. He knew that indulgences were doing nothing more than helping the Pope build his buildings. So 10 days before his 34th birthday, Luther nailed these refutations of indulgences and the Pope to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther didn't know it, 
but a student rushed and grabbed the 95 Theses from that door and took it to be copied because the Gutenberg printing press had just been invented. And so the world was about to be changed because truth was being launched into their hands. How amazing is it that God would use an unconverted monk <laughs> to write 95 theses, many of which Luther would later reject. Most of them were right. Some of them weren't. But to this point, Martin Luther was a failure. Point number one on page two in your notes. Martin Luther was fraudulent. He was a fraud. He was doing everything he could to maintain his standing with God. He had struggled to maintain a right standing with God, but could not. He wrestled with his conscience, having been taught to trust in the false gospel of faith plus works. He was ever tormented by his unregenerate condition. Roman Catholicism has taught for centuries that righteousness is infused at the moment of baptism, yet in his striving for honesty and integrity, Luther knew this was not the case, and so he was vexed. He was unable to understand why this infused righteousness had not resulted in any measure of goodness in his heart. He was keenly aware of his depraved condition and unwilling to pretend that he was actually righteous. Oh, that the false converts that you and I know would be that honest. You see, the person who won't embrace the honesty of total depravity will never recognize his need to be saved from it. Was Luther's condition for the longest time. He certainly knew that there was a problem. And for him, the greater issue was that he did not see righteousness manifest in his heart. He knew that the very basis of his thoughts were only evil continually. This is what you can teach an unbeliever. Teach them the truth from Scripture. Be gracious about it. Develop a relationship so that you can actually bring a person to the place where you can say, you know, this is what the Bible says about you and me, born into this condition and yet guilty for it. A couple years after posting the 95 Theses, by the way, it's Theses, not Thesis. Do you know that? A little grammar lesson here. Thesis, singular, Theses is plural. doesn't really matter, but now you know. In 1519, while studying in the bell tower of the very same church where he had nailed the 95 Theses, he pondered Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Now, I love that passage, and you do too. Let me tell you something about Romans 1.17. It's the window into the book of Romans, but you're never going to understand Romans 1.17 rightly without having an understanding of the whole book. It's that dual reality. When you find a thesis statement like John 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you may have life. When you find that thesis passage, that central distilled reality about a book, that gives you a window into the whole book, but you've got to study the whole book to really rightly understand that passage. And this is true about Romans 1.17. How many times might Martin Luther have read this prior to that? Who knows? But many people read over it, and they don't get it. But the more you read through Romans, the more you realize when you look at verse 17, wow. The righteous live by belief. You're made to be righteous by faith. It's by faith. 
not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say the same thing, essentially. It was then, as he pondered Romans 1.17, that the Spirit of God relieved him of his burden to earn, achieve, or maintain righteousness. Believing in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, God imputed righteousness to him. Steve Lawson says, Righteousness is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. Luther called it an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It's outside of us. See, that's imputation. Does that make sense? God declares you righteous, and yet you're not infused with righteousness. You're still bad. You have a new nature, but you also have the flesh. You don't have two natures. You're not two people. You know that, right? You say, well, Christ has two natures. That's the miracle of the incarnation. He's God and he's man. He's not two people. He's one person with two natures. He's the only entity, the only being who has two natures. You and I have one nature. Scripture never indicates that you have two natures. If you're in Christ, you have a new nature. But see, that idea that you have two natures conjures up the idea of the carnal Christian. As long as I have two natures, I can act like a believer and an unbeliever and everything's just fine. I made Jesus my Savior. I just haven't made him my Lord yet. I'm thinking about that. Again, Luther called this an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. Just as Paul said of the Pharisees, the same could have been said of Luther. Listen to this from Romans 10, verse 1. Now, you know Paul's heart was for the Jews. He loved unbelievers. He had no idea who were of the elect until they were saved. Prayed for all the Jews. He wants all Jews to be saved. Here in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There's a zealousness for God. There's some sort of invigorated passion for God, but not according to knowledge. You know these people. You know people like this. Maybe you were like this. A real, legitimate, sincere zeal, but it was misguided. And therefore, a person can walk away and say, well, I'm a Christian even though I don't act like Christ. Tony McCracken, when he preached a few weeks ago, said to us quite plainly, there's no such thing as Christianity without Christ. Seems a little oversimplified, but the sad reality is that evangelicalism is at that place where that's perfectly okay. I'm a Christian. Why? Because I decided to be. So what? My life looks nothing like Christ. So what? I don't love the church. So what? I misuse his word. Don't really love his word. Use it to dispute everything I disbelieve from anyone that I hear and don't like. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. See that? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Who's ignorant of the righteousness of God? The person who doesn't believe that he's totally depraved. He thinks he's good enough to choose righteousness to be a little bit better and ultimately be good enough for Christ to approve of him. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who 
believes. It's always the operative term in this transaction called regeneration. It's never about a prayer, ever. It's never about a choice. See, in the Old Testament, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's talking to Israel. He's not talking to the pagan nations. He's talking to the people of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the termination of the law. He's the point of the law. He's the goal of the law. The law leads you to Christ. The law is the tutor to Christ. The law brings you to the place where you say, you know what, I want to help you, but I can't ultimately help you, so I'm going to take you to the one who can. It's the tutor, the law. Brings you to Christ. The law shows you its requirements, and it shows you you can't fulfill the requirements. You need the one who has. So the law shows you to Christ. He's the end. He's the terminus of the law. It was Christ and Christ alone that Luther found his justification in, and he was freed from his shackles. Well, second, I want you to see that Luther was flawed. Man, was he flawed. You think you're flawed. Luther was convinced the book of James was not inspired. That's a flaw. He hated Jews. It's a real problem today for Jews when you as a Christian bring up Luther because they know the history. Be careful with that. Don't deny it. Don't whitewash Luther's hatred for Jews. It was intense, it was real, and it was sinister. He drank way too much beer. Luther was wrong on infant baptism. He did not believe in salvific infant baptism at the end of his life, although he did early on in his infancy in the Christian faith. He taught consubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation says that when you take the Lord's table, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ, and the cup becomes the literal blood. It does not happen. You know that. It's mysticism. You know, and think of it. The person, you know, you imagine being a kid in the Roman Catholic Church. Wait a minute. It's grape juice. No, it's not. It's the blood of Christ. Oh. That's how things work there. Luther believed that it was the body and the blood of Christ in spirit. Still wrong. It's not the blood and the body of Christ. It's bread and it's grape juice. Now, many of our Reformed Baptist friends would say, but Jesus is more involved when we take the Lord's table. We would simply say it's a means of grace, like any other discipline is. It's a memory. But we would say that Luther was wrong in the concept of consubstantiation. It's just bread and it's just juice. Well, three, point number three related to Luther. Luther was faithful. Luther was faithful. He was uh, excommunicated, 1520. By papal decree, he was ordered to attend the hearing at Worms, Germany, and to recant all his writings. He questioned the authority of the pope and the validity of the priesthood. And people didn't do that then. So 
you know, when you hear somebody criticizing Luther, saying, oh, infant baptism, oh, consubstantiation, oh, the Eucharist, oh, all these things, cut Luther some slack. What Reformation did you start? You know, what major false gospel did you undo? There's a lot of work to be done, and people who criticize the Reformers because they didn't come all the way to premillennialism or dispensationalism, which some of them did, by the way, they're not thinking straight. There was so much wrong. The Roman Catholic Church was and is absolutely corrupt, theologically and practically. <laughs> but praise God for the once fraudulent but ultimately faithful and flawed Martin Luther. We've cleared up a lot of misconceptions during this study. John Calvin did not kill Michael Servetus. He testified to his bad theology, and the government killed him. John Calvin asked for him to receive the more merciful execution of beheading, and the government rejected it. It's things like that that people run with, isn't it? Oh, well, Luther, he was just drunk all the time. He was so rude. He was rude. Google Luther's offensive comments. I don't have time to read them to you. Some of them are funny, some of them aren't. This guy had no problem getting in your face. Why? Because he applied the same passion to where he was wrong as he did for where he was right. And so do you. So do I. Well, you want Luther to kind of back down where he's wrong if he thinks he's right? Cut him some slack. I know I don't need to tell you that, but you're going to need to tell somebody that who says to you, oh, your, your church honors Martin Luther? Let me tell you some problems with Martin Luther. You can say, let me tell you my list first. Cut him off at the pass. But deal with where he was faithful. Luther would publicly debate the Pope's theologians at the Diet of Worms. By the way, Worms is a city in Germany. It's not something you eat. April 1521, he was summoned to the Diet of Worms for a hearing, a trial. He preached all the way there, publicly declaring the gospel, and he developed a massive following. He became an incredibly popular and well-followed preacher. On April 18th of 1521, during the hearing, when he was challenged to recant all his works, he had some 56 works, and the Pope is saying to him, put them away, recant, burn them, do away with it. This is his response. This is faithful Martin Luther. So through the mercy of God, I ask your imperial majesty and your illustrious lordships, or anyone of any degree, to defeat them by the writings of the prophets or by the gospels. For I shall be most ready, if I be better instructed, to recant any error, and I shall be the first in casting my writings into the fire. End quote. Thereupon, the orator of the empire, in a tone of upbraiding, said that Luther's answer was not to the point and that there should be no calling into question of matters on which condemnations and decisions had before been passed by councils. He was being asked for a plain reply with no subtlety or sophistry to the question, was he prepared to recant or no? Luther then replied, Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture or 
since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning I stand convinced by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this, I take my stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Amen. This was the heart and the conduct of a faithful but flawed man that the Lord used to upturn the most corrupt organization the world has ever known. 1,000 years of corruption. He used John Huss. He used multiple other men prior to to Luther, but ultimately Luther was the engine that drove the locomotive of the Reformation. The Reformation was lit on fire. Luther was challenged and given a few days to come back and recant when he was initially challenged, but subsequent to having had this hearing, he was kidnapped by his friends as he departed. They hid him in the Wartburg Castle for eight or nine months, and while there, he translated the New Testament into German. So when your friend says, let me tell you some bad stuff about Martin Luther, you say, what language have you translated the Bible into? Luther would show himself to be a hero of the faith. In his last will and testament, he wrote, I'm well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And this was true of him. He made a mark because he was faithful. He was asked by a friend, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? He answered emphatically, yes. But his final words were this, we are beggars. This is true. They carried Luther's body back to Wittenberg and buried it under the pulpit of the church where he had nailed the 95 theses to the door and where he had preached many times thereafter. His body is there to this day. His wife, Catherine, wrote, For who would not be sad and afflicted at the loss of such a precious man as my dear Lord was? He did great things, not just for a city or a single land, but for the whole world. The 21 love letters written from Martin Luther to his wife, Catherine, survive today where he referred to her as Lord Katie. Wonderful to do a study on the life of Catherine Luther. She was a reformer herself. You've heard of Table Talk. Some of you receive that in the mail on a monthly basis. Table talk started in the Luther's home where young theologians would come to be taught and learn from Martin Luther. Many have said that table talk wouldn't have taken place if Catherine hadn't provided the table. She not only provided the table, she provided much of the theological input. He not only had an impact on the world, he had an impact on his family. You know, this kind of thing should really impact us. And how do you respond when you hear the name Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Knox? You get all excited about their flaws. 
Oh, they were corrupt. They were wretched. Or do you praise God that Peter and Paul and John, you know, John, the son of thunder, it's not a compliment, becomes the apostle of love? Wasn't Peter faithful but flawed, having been fraudulent? Wasn't Paul fraudulent and eventually flawed but faithful? And how about you? How about me? Are we growing in such a way that our fraudulent state is no longer that by which we are depicted? But in our faithfulness, while we are recognized as being flawed, we can still confidently say, the Lord's using us because we're justified by faith alone. Father, we are overjoyed with the work that the Savior did on the cross. That an offensive man like Martin Luther, not someone I would have chosen, would be used with greatness to change the world. Lord, help us to put away the distractions that cause us to think that church history somehow doesn't matter. But Lord, may we learn from the faithful and flawed saints of old that we too, in our flawed condition, would be faithful, knowing that you who began the work will be faithful to complete it, and yet you've called us to work out our salvation, we who have been faithful, knowing that it is you who do the work, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Father, help us to faithfully ascribe your glory to you, the glory of Jesus Christ to him. Lord, help us today to faithfully equip and edify and strengthen one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And also, Lord, we ask that in so doing, you would equip us to win the lost sheep to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.